everyone. Welcome to Risk Roundup. It is not just the United States, across nations, people are more afraid than ever before. The growing fear has many reasons. For instance, human security is under serious threat as COVID-19 pandemic is nowhere near to be over. Moreover, industries are collapsing. In the United States, the 2020 election was also contested. As societal unrest grows, the world is moving towards tribalism. Fear now dominates for and from government, institutions, freedom, politics, media, big tech, free speech, health, jobs, economy, survival, and security. Therefore, it is necessary to evaluate the why, how, and when of how people perceive fear. It is crucial to understand the science of fear. To discuss the science of fear that helps us understand the growing fight or flight response, I'm honored to welcome Professor John S. Torde to Risk Roundup. Professor Torde is a development physiologist from UCLA with a strong interest in how and why physiology has evolved. Welcome, Professor Torde. We are so delighted to have you on Risk Roundup. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. Wonderful, Professor. Glad to have you here again. The term fight or flight represents the choices that we have when we are faced with danger in our environment. This environment can be for our societal security, economic security, national security, and more. The choices are limited as we could either fight or flee. Today, more and more people are ready to fight on all available platforms and domains. We know that the fight or flight response has been around since the dawn of man, since the beginning of humankind. But we are only just learning about its physiology and psychology. It seems we have reached a point where we need to evaluate the science of fear, the science of flight or fight response that you know we uh, are witnessing. Risk Group community and I look forward to your thoughts on this crucial topic of science of fight or flight. So especially the biology that you have understood over the years that brings out the best and worst in us. Please share your thoughts and presentation. Go ahead, please. So the title of this talk is Human Evolution, Fight, Flight, or Problem Solve. Uh, next slide, please. So we know from uh, both fossil evidence and from genomics a great deal about um, human migration out of the Rift Valley in Africa some 150, 200,000 years ago. Some, some uh, humans went north towards Europe uh, through the Middle East, others went eastward, and then it becomes a bit more complicated. But I'm just going to focus on the migration northward into Europe um, as the basis for the, the evolution of uh, uh, Western European civilization. Um, the the hormone that determines uh, the fact that we are warm-blooded, uh, only mammals and birds are warm-blooded, um, is the hormone oxytocin, and I show that in this slide. And that was a great driver for the migration northward because it allowed us to go further and further north into colder and co colder climates. Um, but importantly, oxytocin has many, many effects on human behavior, um, among them being, um, uh, it, it basically, it's referred to as the love hormone. If you treat a feral 
uh, a wolf, a feral dog with oxytocin within seconds, literally, it becomes domesticated. And so this is a, a great effector of human behavior and the origins of our civilization. And that's what I want to address is where have we gone wrong in this age of COVID? Uh, next slide, please. So here I um, show <clears throat> the um, relationship between the fight or flight mechanism and oxytocin um, <clears throat> as the alternative to the fight or flight mechanism in a sense. And that oxytocin, as I said, it's driven migration human imagination and ultimately our civilization, and I will explain that as I, as I go along. Um, COVID-19 has actually undermined this relationship um, such that our history, sociology, and technology no longer um, are the basis for our behaviors. It's now the, the virus that's telling us how to react to one another and um, and as a, as, a, as a community of, of uh, human beings. Uh, next slide, please. So the scientific method which has been in existence for five or six hundred years now, has given us insight to our being based on observation and experimentation. Next slide. John Archibald, the, the well-known cosmologist, um, in his retrospective uh, look at um, astronomy, uh, cosmology, and, um, and the human condition, he, he came up with this idea of uh, a participatory universe as a self-excited circuit, which is diagrammed here. So basically he's saying that the cosmos <clears throat> is looking at us <clears throat> and we in turn look at the cosmos and that this is the essence of our being. So it's a very uh, metaphysical concept and an interesting one coming from a hard scientist like Wheeler. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, art, on the other hand, can also give us insight to our being, though only intuitively, not in a testable and refutable way, uh, which is Karl Popper's, which are Popper's criteria for what science really should be. It should both be testable scientifically, and if false, it should be re uh, refutable. Next slide. So here we have uh, Rene Magritte's painting, uh, Do Not Reproduce. Um, we're looking at someone looking in a mirror from the back of their, their head. And so this is the observer and the observed observing. This is uh, essentially the, the artist's version of what Wheeler had concluded this relationship between the cosmos and the individual and how we interrelate with one another on a cosmic scale and on a human scale at the same time. Next slide, please. So the prevailing um, concept theory of uh, how we have developed and evolved is referred to as the endosymbiogenesis theory, the, which was promulgated, put forward by Lynn Margulis, a professor of mine in college, and then a colleague when I was at Harvard Medical School a number of years ago. And Lynn's uh, concept, which he didn't actually originate, but which he really uh, put on the map, if you will, was that the way that we evolved, if we're going from uh, uh, unicellular or through unicellular organisms from left, left to right, was the endogenization of factors in the environment that posed us an ex existential threat. So the classic example is uh, iron, which is the most uh, pre uh, prevalent um, common um, mineral in the Earth's crust, for example. Iron is a very potent oxidizing agent, um, but in our um, physiology, it forms the core of the heme protein in red blood cells that al allows for the transport of oxygen around the, uh, through the circulation and to the various tissues to oxygenate. Um, and there are many examples of these factors in the environment. Um, oxygen is another, um, uh, heavy metals, ions, 
bacteria themselves, which became mitochondria, the uh, energy source of uh, um, our uh, cells, for example. So this is a well-known phenomenon. Um, but uh, And then when we went from unicellular to multicellular organisms, we evolved the capacity for cellular communication. So starting with a fertilized egg here on the left, a zygote, we see this energy flow from the zygote to the various stages of uh, the embryo as it uh, divides in two, four, um, eight, 16, et cetera. Um, and the, me the mechanism that underlies that process is mediated by these uh, so-called uh, these growth factors and their signaling. But the signaling is actually constituted by high-energy high phosphates. Uh, so what we're actually witnessing is a transfer of energy from one cell to the other until um, we are born. And then during the entire uh, arc of our life cycle, uh, it's all a function of energy transfer. And that energy transfer actually emanates from the origins of the cosmos, uh, um, the Big Bang, which is thought to have started in a singularity, one huge entity, which then uh, uh, basically blew up. And we, uh, both um, the physical and the um, organic aspects of existence, have been trying to reassemble that singularity in a sense uh, ever since. This is what we are, uh, what drives our life cycle. So next slide, please. So in the beginning, there were um, uh, lipids, fat, and water that um, were delivered to the Earth's surface uh, by these uh, snowball-like asteroids that contained those lipids um, and water, the frozen water, the frozen snowball uh, asteroids. And the reason the asteroids were able to strike the surface of the Earth is because there was no atmosphere and no oxygen in the atmosphere to oxidize these asteroids, as is the case uh, now. Um, and sure enough, the artists are always ahead of the curve in terms of the science. And Robert Frost, in one of his note notebooks, stated that life is that which can mix oil and water. And he's actually uh, exactly right, except that he had no experimental evidence for it. That's where the advantage of science allows for connecting Frost's uh, metaphor with other aspects of, of the human condition. Uh, next slide. So about 500 million years ago, a greenhouse effect due to rising levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere uh, generated by plant life caused an increase in atmospheric temperature, partially drying up the ocean, uncovering the Earth's surface in part. So we had land masses. The rise in the atmospheric temperature also decreased the amount of oxygen dissolved in water because the uh, ability of oxygen to, uh, of any gas to dissolve in water is a function of how warm or cold the water is. And the warmer it is, the less gas can be dissolved. So that drove uh, so-called bony fish, bo fish with a bony skeleton, <clears throat> out of water onto land. Next slide. Uh, Neil Shubin discovered uh, this organism, or the fossil remains of this organism, which he called Tiktaalik, uh, which he published in 2004. Um, and this was the first, ex the first hard evidence, pardon the pun, so it literally is fossilized evidence for a transitional organism from fish to land-dwelling organisms, uh, which was very important because then it offered the opportunity to ask how and why that occurred. Next slide. So the swim bladder of bony fish evolved into the lungs of land vertebrates in contradistinction to the, the way we've thought about that for many, many decades, and that is that it was the the, the uh, gills that actually gave rise to the, the lung uh, by analogy because both 
uh, are, um, mediate the uptake of, of uh, oxygen. That turns out not to be the, the case with genomic information. So the swim bladder, which uh, is responsible for maintaining the buoyancy of the fish, uh, allowing it to float at different levels in the water for feeding or for sleeping for that matter, and everything in between. So the uh, swim bladder gave rise um, to the lung in the progression from uh, amphibians, frogs, to reptiles, birds, and mammals as we uh, migrated out of water and adapted to land. The process of lung evolution is a stepwise process resulting from the cell-cell interactions I mentioned in the previous slide, uh, in the two slides ago, I'm sorry, triggered by periods of hypoxia, lack of adequate oxygen for metabolism. In other words, the, the lung is evolving in a stepwise fashion, and periodically it can't keep up with the demand of metabolism of the organism, so the organism becomes oxygen poor. Hypoxia is the most potent stimulus of the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, increasing adrenaline production by the adrenal gland, relieving the limitation for oxygenation by increasing surfactant production by the alveoli, the tiny air sacs of the lung, allowing them um, uh, to uh, distend because of uh, stim the stimulation by adrenaline of surfactant, which is a soapy material that uh, is present in all of these uh, air sacs. And that, in turn, uh, transiently, um, just for the moment, allowed for increased oxygenation by allowing the air sacs to, to distend further. That was kind of a stopgap measure. Next slide. So here's the diagram of what I'm talking about. Um, I will start here on the far left. This hypoxic condition, the decreased oxygen in the environment, um, ca um, caused, a st caused stress, physiologic stress on the system which uh, caused the pituitary gland, a small nut, uh, walnut-sized uh, organ in, at the base of the brain to produce ACTH, adrenocorticotrophic hormone. And that in turn stimulates, uh, so here's the adrenal gland, the cortex and the medulla, the triangular-shaped um, corte uh, cortex and the rectangular-shaped medulla. And ACTH then stimulates cortisol production, hydrocortisone, which you can buy over the counter these days. Um, and the cortisol then finds its way through the microcirculation of the medulla and stimulates adrenaline production. Um, and that adrenaline production then acted on the lung, on the evolving lung, to allow for increased surfactant, which I show here uh, on the right side of that lung. Um, um, and the surfactant, as I said, allows for this transient increase in uh, the um, size of the alveoli so that there's a greater surface area for gas exchange. Um, as, an, as a side effect of that, um, the adrenaline also causes the disruption of fat cells in this, in this periphery of the organism, uh, fat pads, and that releases free fatty acids from, the, from these uh, uh, fat cells. And free fatty acid is, a very, is the most uh, efficient substrate um, fuel for generating body heat. So as a consequence of this cycle, um, there was an increase in body temperature, and that was the origin of our being uh, warm-blooded, being able to make, um, regulate our own body temperature in, um, um, independently of the uh, uh, temperature of the atmosphere, as cold-blooded organisms are dependent upon. So, you know, a little lizard comes out in the morning and has to warm up by the sun in order to be able to start to be able to move around and, and uh, catch, you know, insects, et cetera, et cetera. We don't have to do that. We can just get up and go. 
So that's a huge advantage in terms of the mobility we have. Next slide. So here's a somewhat complicated slide, but if I start at the bottom, the origins of life actually were these lipid molecules that I mentioned earlier had been delivered to the Earth by these um, uh, snowball-like asteroids. And when those lipid molecules are immersed in water, um, they're called amphiphiles. They have a positive and a negative charge at either um, end of this molecule. The negative, uh, negatively charged end is soluble, soluble in water. The positively charged end sticks up into the air. Uh, and it and it actually is literally perpendicular to the water. Um, that was the beginnings of uh, life for us as um, as vertebrates, um, and that those lipid molecules then formed micelles, uh, these uh, spheres formed by um, a, a number of lipid molecules forming a semi-permeable membrane around uh, distinguishing the outside of the cell from the inside of the cell. And the reason that that uh, occurred was because when these uh, lipid molecules align themselves in the surface of the water, they're able to reduce the surface tension of water, and that's what allowed for these micelles to, to have uh, appeared. Uh, they in turn gave rise to what's called niche construction. That is, the as I mentioned earlier, the, the cells are evolving by internalizing or endogenizing factors in the environment. And so there, the, the, the niche construction is the idea that there's this continuum from what the cell content the, um, in terms of these factors from the environment forming our physiology as a continuum with the, ecos the uh, ecosphere that they're in. So there's a continuum from the inside of the cell to the outside. Um, and that in turn gave rise to multicellular organisms um, and to um, warm bloodedness or endothermy, um, which allowed for us to stand on two legs. It's referred to as bipedalism. This was a huge advantage in terms of human evolution. Only birds and humans stand naturally on two legs. Sure, dogs can do it, but that's just a trick. We do it naturally and spontaneously. The importance of bipedalism uh, is that it gave rise to the ability to make tools and to form language uh, because you freed the forelimbs to do so. Um, and inter in intermediate to the bipedalism and the tool making and language was the evolution of the genetic control of body temperature by the uh, posterior pituitary hormone oxytocin. So this is another hormone that's made in the pituitary gland, and it signals through dopamine um, for a whole um, constellation of bio, uh, human behavioral um, characteristics um, amongst the, the primary of which is imagination, um, the, the ability to conceive of um, what you could do with uh, once your forelimbs were freed um, for um, making um, spear tips, for fa uh, write, uh, written language, the generation of uh, the movable, movable type by Gutenberg, the mechanization of um, language or written language as a tool, um, which ultimately gave rise to civilization. And civilization in turn feeds back on this system. It creates a, a safe haven for imagination, for generation of tools, um, uh, human discourse, talking about what it is like to be human uh, and to generate, literally generate civilization. Um, and that all feeds back on this system such that we have um, you know, modern, modern society, if you will. So next slide, please. Um, uh, this is a series of clicks. So if I start here at the bottom with these uh, lipid molecules, 
giving rise to the first principles of physiology uh, overlaid by physiologic stress uh, of the water to land transition and the generation of adrenaline, we have an increase in oxygen and uh, oxygenation and metabolism and warm bloodedness and ultimately bipedalism, walking on two legs, freeing the forelimbs, um, ability to make tools. And language again is, is a form of tool making. If you have subject, object, bracketing ver the verb in a sentence, that's basically making, um, cobbling together a thought that generates language, generates, um, and then a conversation, and then you have written language in terms of um, words, sentences, paragraphs, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, so there is a commonality here between the, by, the, the forelimbs four generating, um, allowing for tool making and language. Next slide. And ultimately you have, you know, the advent of modern human beings. And, you know, the sidelight to this is this, the origins of this is in the stress-related mechanism for transitioning from water to land. So this is a somewhat complicated slide. I, I may actually not go through all of it. It's basically what I just said with a few more doodads stuck, stuck onto it. Um, but here, if you focus on the, the fact that oxytocin was critically important once we transitioned from water to land and became bipedal, um, one of the critical factors here is the formation of a, a lipid coat. Um, think of a, a, a piece of electrical wire, a copper wire, and around it, there's insulation. That's what myelin is. Myelinization was critically important in the further uh, evolution of the central nervous system and the conduction of uh, calcium waves, which are the way that our uh, brains and both the central and peripheral nervous system work. But that all gave rise ultimately to what we th think of as civilization. And, and I'm showing here how it feeds back on this system in a positive, in a positive feedback fashion. So there's this intimate relationship between civilization, societal organization, and all of these physiologic principles that go to make, um, to make us as human beings up and allowing us to, um, uh, to live in civilization. So next slide, please. Um, so here on the left, I'm, again, I'm showing um, the evolution of man from um, great apes. Uh, in all likelihood, uh, humans are actually um, juvenile great apes for many reasons that I won't delve into, but suffice it to say that we, there is a lineage here. And the critical factor is the ability to stand on two legs and to um, and the uh, um, presence of a prehensile thumb and the ability to make tools in language. Um, the reason I feel strongly that this is correct, and I'm working backwards here, is that there is actually an area in the uh, cerebral cortex of the human brain, the area of Broca, um, which actually is where um, tool making and language reside, the ability to make tools and, and, to, um, and to form language and ultimately to combine those two for written language. So for example, if someone has a stroke, they use, lose both their, their facility in terms of um, their motor skills and also language for, for this very reason. But this is the, the mediator of this tool making language phenomenon. And ultimately, as I say here, the generation of mo movable type, um, and it's underpinned by this driver of oxytocin coming from the posterior pituitary um, generating human imagination, which then interplays with these properties in order to, um, so for example, um, the uh, Gutenberg uh, press um, for movable type actually emanated from a wine press. So how clever was that to move from making wine to making printed words? Um, pretty clever. 
but that's what civilization is all about is taking different concepts and uh, merging them to, mashing them together and coming out with some novel innovation or thought process it's and I, I don't distinguish between a novel idea and a novel technology they're all one of a kind uh, next slide um, and so now here I'm going to contrast the fight or flight mechanism which all um, of our uh, all vertebrates have this capacity and I'll contrast that with problem solving which is unique uh, I believe to humans yes there are ways that you can teach an old dog new tricks but these are just behaviors they're not really a thought processes so fight or flight is stimulated by fear which as I said earlier it stimulates cortisol production by the adrenal cortex and for example during pregnancy cortisol will go from the mother to the infant uh, the developing embryo and we know that if cortisol levels are too high they are known to cause depression both in us and in our offspring so you get chronic depression uh, across generations if you have unmitigated fear dominated um, conditions um, and that leads to you know the French term is anomie the, the sense of you know it's basically depression um, you know it's, it's basically depression um, and it leads to authoritarianism because if you are depressed you won't come up with novel ideas you won't be able to think for yourself and therefore the political system will shift from a democratic to an author authoritarian condition um, conversely um, with problem solving um, we have oxygen uh, driving those these um, uh, hormones in, in the brain such as uh, endorphins we all are probably familiar with the endorphin high that you experience when you're a long distance runner uh, as a result of which you don't feel much physical pain after a while um, the um, vasopressin which is a uh, the partner of oxytocin it, it has other interesting features which probably underpinned the movement of humans out of the rift valley towards the east but I can't I don't have enough time to uh, to discuss that but there are there are similarities between the effect of oxytocin on Western European culture and vasopressin on Asian culture that are very deep and very ancient but these um, endocrine these neuroendocrine hormones give rise to creativity imagination and ingenuity and ultimately to civilization which then as I, I repeatedly said feeds back on the system to um, to uh, in, a, in a, um, a synergistic way to improve and to um, capitalize on the benefit of a, of a civilized society in terms of um, creativity innovation ingenuity all the things that we uh, hold dear as a, as a society um, as citizens of this country next slide so I'm going to talk a little bit about epigenetic inheritance that's different from genetic inheritance in that these are changes in the um, readout of the of the uh, DNA in your nuclei in the nuclei of our cells that it doesn't change the code it modifies it so the organism acts as an agent for ob obtaining information from the from its environment which is different from the way we normally think of um, ourselves as uh, phenotypic uh, organisms with certain traits no the actual mission we we have is to obtain information from the from an ever-changing environment which is a given our environment is constantly changing um, and basically uh, if you think about the fact that the moon uh, is either what was in, uh, came from the same sources that the earth did or the con the other theory of how the moon came about was it was 
ripped from the earth. But the point being that it acts as a, a counterbalance to the earth, which sits at a, uh, a 43 de uh, degree uh, axial tilt, which generates the seasons. And the moon in turn stabilizes the axial tilt. And also the phases of the moon also have influence on organisms living on the surface of the earth. Um, and so we probably are unique. There are many other Earths, but apparently our moon is the only one that is as large as to be able to have that stabilizing effect on our Earth. So the data acquired um, by the, uh, by the uh, organism as a, an agent uh, is incorporated into the egg and the sperm of the parent organism um, in the, ovary, um, the ovaries and testes. Only those data that are relevant uh, are incorporated. We don't know how this mechanism actually functions at that the level of making the determination as to which DNA codes are being modified by this epigenetic mechanism. But my laboratory at UCLA is actively studying this under funding from the NIH because it's a very it's probably the black matter of biology. So the determinants of the relevance of any given gene are, are the truths of the organism's history. This is where truth biologically resides. This is how and why truth is essential in order for us to maintain this epigenetic mechanism. Um, and without that kind of um, ability to determine what is true, we become disoriented and uh, um, are at risk for becoming extinct or, um, or, follow it or alternatively following false data which essentially is a larger arc of becoming extinct anyway. So this is the threat that we're under. Next slide. So here's my um, synthesis of all this again with the fight or flight mechanism and um, the relationship to oxytocin uh, migration uh, in north, uh, northward uh, to uh, um, Western Europe, um, uh, all facilitated by human imagination and the, the generation of, um, of Western European civilization. Um, undermined by the COVID-19 uh, infectious process, by the pandemic, uh, which, in my opinion, um, has led to tribalism instead of civilization. So all of this history and sociology and technology I'm showing here that underpins this process and has this feedback uh, effect on our physiology and our well-being has been undermined. Um, and the longer we um, allow that to, to occur, the less likely we are to get back to a civilized uh, condition and away from a tribal kind of mentality. Next slide. So tribalism and civilization are in a fine balance. And the question is, which of these will win out? Um, and um, I think we, we have the opportunity to correct to, for, for a mid-course uh, correction, but as I was discussing with uh, Professor Pandya, um, the, the difficult, the, the challenge is that we cannot go back to the same old, same old, because we know that that's not effective. So the question is, what do we do the day after COVID-19? Next slide. And so the question is, is, is this a beginning? It's my hope. It's why I shared these ideas. So thank you. Thank you so much, Professor Torde. It was an excellent presentation. I was thinking about the point that you made about the energy transfer and how the information is absorbed inside the cell. Now, because we are witnessing uh, 
the collapse of objectivity and there is a rise in partisanship and there is rise in propaganda, the information coming from all different outlets, there are so many different media outlets now, and there is a democratization of communication. So there is amidst the flow, enormous flow of information coming, disinformation and misinformation that is coming, how does it impact the humans in how they absorb the information, how that information is uh, processed internally and how the energy flow impacts their behavior. Because as we are witnessing, the behavioral issues are growing on the social media. And uh, it is not only just the social media, it's, uh, it's irrespective of whether the behavior is expressed in a very violent way on social media or you know outside in the real world the boundaries are blurring so what reasons do you see or what is at the root of these behavioral issues and the energy flow that is that we are witnessing that is becoming more and more violent and it's expressed you know in form of violence where do you see that taking us, you know, for as a human society, as a civilization? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, I guess I would um, start with uh, David Bohm, the great uh, uh, one of Einstein's students. He was a physicist. And uh, uh, Bohm was of the opinion that um, we actually live in a subjective world of our own making with our senses having evolved to survive. But that in reality, there is a true... Uh, um, a true reality um, beyond our reach. Uh, so he called that the implicate uh, order. We live in the explicate order. And the trick, the what we are, our purpose is always to experiment, to challenge our environment, either through uh, pure science or through uh, literature or through art or through music. It's all experiment or even sport. These are all experiments we're conducting. And, and those allow us to bridge from this subjective explicate world that we have of our own making to the truth, if you will, to the true uh, organ, um, hierarchical relationships in, in the cosmos, which do exist. And so your question, um, I think, um, is answered by that in the sense that up until um, not that long ago, there was a, there was a synchrony between um, what we thought was true and what we were being taught and what we experienced. There was a little bit of a disconnect. I wrote a paper with uh, Franciszek Belushka, a botanist in Germany, saying the reason we accept in science, in biologic science, we accept the fact that there may be as much as a 5% error in our, our experimental results just because um, that's the way, because biology is sloppy. But in reality, it's because we don't really understand the, it's not physics, it's not mathematics, it's biology. But we don't really understand that. We, we, we just accept it. We're always approximating. And we'll never be, by the way, we will never enter the, the implicate um, realm because we'll always be at a, what's referred to in mathematics as an asymptote, because our, we, began, we began in an, in a, uh, an ambiguity. Uh, this is Schrodinger's idea about what, in his book, What is Life, which he published in 1944. He said, as a physicist, um, in reality, life, the, the driving force of life is this what's referred to as negative entropy, entropy, a negative uh, energetic state, which is the opposite of what happens in the environment. In the environment, 
um, thermodynamically, if you have a heat source, it will dissipate until it reaches, uh, um, it, it all evens out. We don't do that biologically within us. That's what, what our life force is. So we always exist in an ambiguity, and that's why we're never going to achieve the pure implicate state. That's not our purpose. Our purpose is always to strive for it and to remain at least in sync with or even perhaps ahead of the curve of this constantly changing environment. I, I hope that makes sense. So what, the way I see the answer to your problem, what you're asking is um, we had at least a lowercase t uh, sense of truth and we strove for the higher, uh, the uppercase t um, uh, case T with uh, capital T truth as our driving force, but that's no longer the case. We're being undermined by our technology, um, by the narcissistic feedback that we get from our own computers and from um, various sources, and we pick and choose, but they're not, they're dissociated from, from the laws of nature, which is really, so, so that's another important idea, and that is, I, I think that consciousness is not you know, talk the the conversation in our heads. It's not that's not what mind is. Our our consciousness is the same set of principles that uh, that the cosmos is based upon. The same laws of nature, and we are being dissociated from that relationship. That's what the problem is. We have to get back to that that kind of way of understanding who we are, how we are, why we are, based upon principles and not upon subjective um, um, conjecture. Yes, yes, no, I hear you. And we are living in an entangled, entangled system, right? I mean, everybody is connected to each other and uh, irrespective of where we are. Now, when I look, your point about imagination is absolutely right on because what we have created in this world is, you know, most of our systems and mo most of the reality in which we exist today is based on our imagination and everything we create is based on our new ideas and ability to imagine new way, new ways of doing things now when we look at the fight or flight response that our ancestors had you know in ancient time you know since the beginning of the human civilization not many that in those days there was nothing more like you know property or uh, possessions that people, you know, would uh, worry about, you know, protecting. They would be traveling everywhere. They would just pick up, you know, whatever uh, tools they have with them. And, you know, they would survive, you know, one day here, one day there. But the reality today is very different. We, people live in a civilized society. People have homes, people have jobs, people have the roots. And now when they face the enormous security risk, that they are facing, as we see today, you know, nobody is sure about whether they'll survive, you know, COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, not may, Nobody is sure whether they will have uh, jobs in the coming tomorrow, whether they'll be able to provide for their family. So uh, this is just a figure of speech, you know, when I say nobody, it's a uh, lot of people are really, really scared about what is coming their way about you know what is going to happen to them to their children whether they will have any sense of economic financial you know security or any security in cyberspace there are there are many many growing challenges pandemic was you know the tip of the iceberg so amidst all this new emerging reality 
where every one of us has roots, has, you know, family to protect, has have loved one to protect. How is this fight or flight response going to take shape in the coming tomorrow? Because we cannot just leave behind everything and, you know, run to another country. We all live in one this country. If we talk about United States, we are all, you know, part of United States. Now, if there are challenges growing here, it's not like, you know, people will start uh, picking up what they have and, you know, go move to another country. So we have to solve problems. We have to solve problems in a civilized manner, thinking that we are all fellow citizens. But this fight or flight response that we are witnessing, that is growing very rapidly, where both sides, all the sides are willing to give their life for, you know, the cause that they believe in. What form do you see this, you know, new response mechanism or rather the old response mechanism evolving into? Well, I think we need a paradigm shift. Our orientation, well, first of all, we've been undermined by the current political structure. You know, we're told that, you know, facts are what, whatever you want to believe. That's ridiculous. Facts are facts. Um, and um, so I think we've artificially been um, forced into this fight or flight condition away from problem solving. We have to re-embrace the, the, lo the logic of problem solving. But the problem is that the logic we're using is really antiquated. Um, uh, for example, I, I think that Marx probably was right in terms of uh, um, his concept of um, dialectic uh, materialism, but he focused on the wrong thing. It was, it's actually dialectic energism. Energy is really the form that um, things in the cosmos actually um, are, are contingent on, not, not matter. Matter is, as uh, Alfred North Whitehead uh, said that um, you know, his, his uh, process philosophy was, uh, was grounded in the idea that um, it's really just energy transfers. Matter is an, is an epiphenomenon. <laughs> and, and I know that that's hard to get our minds around, but we, we put huge emphasis on material. Um, uh, if we're going to take risk, we want material return. There was a time in this country when you could do things from an altruistic perspective. It wasn't, you know, I got into science because we had discovered an important principle in um, in human biology that salvaged um, most premature infants don't die anymore. They used to die by the dozen, the, you know, the, usually if an infant were born prematurely, it died. If prior to the early, uh, late 1960s when this discovery was made, which I won't uh, delve into, but my point being that it, that the work that was done was purely um, because it was the right thing to do. It was it was purely um, altruistic, and altruism has really gone by the wayside. We don't do anything if it's not to our benefit, materially in particular. And I think we have to begin to realize that um, it's interesting that there's this di di dichotomy between uh, Western and Eastern attitudes towards. Um, individualism versus the group. There's probably some someplace in between that is realistic in terms of how we comport ourselves moving forward. And, and you, I'm sure you know that the CIA put out a report back in the mid 70s predicting exactly what's happening in, in, in society today as a consequence of climate change. So, you know, there, there are these causal relationships that have to be addressed in a, some sort of a systematic way to get back to a sense somewhat of a sense of 
normalcy. It doesn't have to be a total revamping, but we just have to get back to, a, um, we're being dissociated. There's a very strong relationship between uh, geochemistry and geophysics that I've demonstrated in terms of lung evolution genetically in a paper I wrote. But with climate change and the injection of so much energy into the, into the environment, it is dissociating our evolution from our, from our environment. That's, that's clearly unhealthy. That has to be rectified. So. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. We have, in fact, we have address group. We have addressed that in our risk report that we just released. That is protecting the planetary health is at the top of our agenda, and uh, we have also given an explanation why we need to be focused on that because everything is connected. If we are looking at the health of the planet and health of human beings, there is a connection between that. So every pandemic also is an ecological disease. So there is a lot that we need to understand and address. So thank you so much, Professor Tarde, for participating in this roundup today. We appreciate your thoughtful insight into the science of fear and the fight of uh, flight. Our global viewers and listeners would benefit tremendously from your, what you had to say today. And as a result, this risk roundup dialogue has been of service. And we thank you for that. Thank you very much. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you so much. Risk Group is a strategic security risk research platform and community. And through the Risk Roundup initiative, Risk Group and I are on a mission to talk with a billion people, innovators, scientists, entrepreneurs, futurists, technologists, policymakers to decision makers. The reason behind this effort is to research, review, rate, and report strategic security risk facing humanity. Thank you for being part of the conversation. Until next time, I'm Jayshree, host of Risk Roundup, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.